2: Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40, created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster Sam Baker. I first met today's guest, Canadian singer-songwriter Martha Wainwright, when I interviewed her in Glasgow a few weeks ago. We got talking about the nuts and bolts of midlife in the green room and I was thrilled when she agreed to continue the conversation on The Shift. One of our foremost singer-songwriters, Martha has released seven critically acclaimed albums, the latest of which, Love Will Be Reborn, is on repeat on my personal playlist. She's also, let's just get this out of the way now, the daughter of folk royalty, inverted commas, Kate McGarrigal and Loudon Wainwright III, and sister of singer Rufus Wainwright. In short, she comes from a family of very, very distinct voices, which made finding her own a particular challenge. Martha joined me from her home in Montreal to discuss her extraordinarily frank, the aptly titled stories I might regret telling you.
1: In terms of having bad taste in men, I think that there was something about me and this insecurity that I had about my looks and and the way that I was that made it that the men that that I was with were people that um, themselves had some confusion. I did have good taste in men and then I liked some really great men. They just didn't like me back.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This conversation goes to all the places. The struggle to make motherhood and the music industry mix, surviving her grim divorce, finding new love with a good man, leaning into your looks, and the agony of being unable to conceive in her forties. Martha is as candid in her conversation as in her songwriting. Oh, and she gave us a guided tour of her enormous vagina painting. Oh, how was the rest of your tour?
1: It was good. It was. We got on the um, tour bus and uh, traveled around. All the shows were sold out, in, in these very beautiful halls, you know. So it was. It was very, very nice. Very cushy for me. I'm not used to only doing four songs it's hard to get your mojo going in those shows you know because you kind of are you sing one song and then you stop for a while but it I think it was I think it was well received it's hard to tell it's not really my world you know the traditional music I like it but I don't play it so it's I'm a little bit of an outsider in that place
2: how long have you been back
1: I've been back four days
2: so jet lag gone
1: Treadleg's gone. Anxiety's gone. I was a little nervous on the road, too, because I missed the kids. And when it's not my shows, as I was saying, you know, you sort of feel like, what am I doing here? (laughs) I should be at home doing this, that, or I should be doing this or should be doing something else. But once I got home and, you know, saw the kids, I I felt better. I shouldn't overreact. I always get nervous that they're, I don't know what, that they're living their lives without me, which I guess is what they should be doing.
2: (laughs) How old are they now?
1: Nine and 13.
2: Oh, God. Do you think men ever feel like that?
1: Well, it was interesting being on the road with mostly men in their 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s, mostly in their 50s and 60s. And these are men who travel essentially for a living. You know, one of the main guys, it was this very well-known fiddle player called Ali bain And he said, you know, we're paid to travel. You know, we're not paid to play music. We're paid to travel because it's the travel that's the hardest part, you know, sort of mm-hmm. being around and going through airports and, you know, checking into hotels at two in the morning, getting up early and flying somewhere else. And that's really where the work, the drudgery of it is, let's say.
2: Yeah, that's so true.
1: And the the guys are these, these seasoned professional musicians who all have kids or for the most part have kids and have spent a lot of their lives away from their kids you know there is a sadness that is there that's obvious you know because I would talk about my kids and you know you could see some sadness or some thoughts or different oh well you know comments of it'll get better when they get older or whatever it is but there was a general sense of uh, of also acceptance and, and doing the job that needed to be done, you know, and that there were these mothers and, or girlfriends at home taking care of the home life, you know. And then there were not a lot of, there was only one other woman on the road, and the other two other girls didn't have children, or three other women didn't have children. And you can see how in, in my profession, in the music industry, why, you know, when women start to have kids, you know, they either quit the profession for a while, or really slow down a lot. And it is, it seems to be um, harder, you know, to do both in any real way. And so a choice is made, a choice is made that I don't think, I haven't seen fathers make. I'm sure there are some musician fathers who have made the decision not to continue in music, but, um, you know, obviously I haven't met them because they're at home, you know, they're not on the road. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> I saw a cartoon, it was a New Yorker cartoon, and it was kind of a guy and a woman, and they both had a picture of their kids on their desk. There's somebody leaning over the guy's shoulder going, ''Oh, are these your kids, how cute?'' And then there's that same person leaning over the woman's shoulder going, Oh, are these your kids? Who's looking after them? <laughs>
1: Well, um, it's just like, yeah, no, it's definitely a social pressure too. you know, I mean, one of the I found myself this last tour, you know, really feeling wracked with guilt and anxiety and sort of life decision making, like, what, what, what have I done? You know, what am I doing? How could I allow this to happen? These two children are alone, of course, they're not alone, they're with their dad, and they're getting on with their lives. It was like, I definitely fell into this depression of anxiety of you know, fundamental life choices that I had somehow made a mistake. And then, of course, when I got home back to Canada and saw them and they put their arms around me and we had a few hours or 24 hours to sort of reacclimatize, they were absolutely fine, you know, and I hadn't jeopardized my relationship with them. So it was a pressure that I had put on myself, you know, too much. And um, it was over the top you know, uh, definitely. And who's taking care of them? You know, you know, in my situation, it's, it's personal situation. It's difficult. I, I wish I had a better relationship with their father because I think it would be easier to travel even as divorced people because I could contact them more easily or there would just be a little bit more of a friendly back and forth, but that's not the way it is. Uh, So I have to go and make money and come home and, and put really literally the food on the table. And I guess I'm proud of that more than anything. Once I get back and the, the, the children are okay, because of course their dad is doing a perfectly okay job, fine job, and they're, they're going to be okay when I'm gone. And the schoolwork is, is half done, but we can fix that. <laughs> and then the food gets available <laughs> and I <laughs> give them the gifts that I bought them. And then I guess I'm really, more than anything, very proud of myself and really happy to have had the opportunity to have the job that I do and come home and then go back out again, you know? Yeah,
2: it shouldn't be so hard, should it, in 2023 to be a mother and have a, I mean, I know your career isn't an ordinary career, it's not nine to five or anything, but but it shouldn't be so tough.
1: No, it shouldn't be, and it, there shouldn't be as, as much sort of questioning, um, constant sort of obsessive questioning of, have I made the right choice? Did I abandon my career? Did I abandon my children? Did I do, you know, how do I get back into it? You know, mm. like there's a lot of time spent, you know, thinking about things that are, that are sort of impossible to answer. On this last tour, I, I was walking a lot because I had a lot of free time, And I've always walked a lot, you know, when I was younger and I would be walking through Glasgow, you know, Kelvin Park or somewhere... You know, I was thinking about songwriting. I was thinking about men. I was thinking about the great fun night that I had the night before. I was going to the galleries. I was meeting people in the pubs. You know, I was like living my life in the present. And now it would seem that when I do have free time and I'm on the road and I'm walking, I'm fretting about the decisions that I've made, you know, and if they were the right decisions and looking at myself going, you know, is this good enough? Is this what you should be doing? What can you be doing better? What is And it does relate to to work and home life and the balance of that, you know, and it seems, um, you know, I missed I guess I missed just walking through the botanical gardens and looking at the flowers rather than saying, okay, well, I have 10 minutes and then I'll go back and maybe have an opportunity to have a quick FaceTime or something. You know, I don't know. It just seems like it's it's taken over Mm. the thought.
2: Is that motherhood or is that age that's done that?
1: I guess both. Motherhood has made it that you think less about yourself and more about other people. You know, that's what's filling up your mind. Is you know, oh, there's there's a, a test coming up. I wonder if he's ready, or you know, the week they have the soccer thing. You know, it does. It takes up a lot of space in your mind. And when you're looking at stores, you're looking for not jackets for yourself, but you know, trainers for the kids or whatever. Um, yeah. So there's an aspect of the, the motherhood motherhood. motherhood aspect of that. But I guess also age also fills up your head with different responsibilities. You know, should I, can I afford to take out another mortgage? And if I do this trip, will that cost me to, you know, whatever those concerns are. I luckily have the opportunity to, you know, sort of scratch out a lot of those feelings when I do get to get up in front of an audience with the guitar and be seen in a way that is, I wouldn't call it glamorous in my situation, but something that is a little bit um, magical and and theatrical and performance driven that does sort of free up those more mundane thoughts about others (laughs) and and does make it more (laughs) ego driven, which of course is completely essential for for me to have confidence to to keep doing
2: it yeah is it that you're more able to live in the moment when you're on the stage and performing because you have to put yourself out there and you have to put everything else to one side
1: Absolutely, that you have to put it yourself, uh, everything else to one side. You have to make the best of the situation because oftentimes, and you know, you might be grappling with a lot of uh, conflicting and difficult emotions. Oh, the hall is not full, or oh, you know, my voice is not that great or, oh, you know, I just came from having a bad, you know, conversation with, with some lawyers. I need to, you know, and you have to sort of push back and away from a lot of, a lot of things that would make you not want to get up on stage and, and be strong and, and, um, and seem like you're in control and that you're, you're steering the ship and, and it's a way to escape a lot of those. Negative, fearful feelings, and try and find the stronger feeling that and, and project that which of course is what the audience wants to see from you. They don't want to see you falling apart and sort of stumbling through your own emotional problems. You know, they've they've paid a you know a ticket price to to be guided and to feel like they're in good hands. You know, so you have to sort of take responsibility for them and their well-being in a way. And and I think the other thing that you that I personally in my situation, and I I would imagine this is for other singers as well, is that you're also trying to connect with the lyrics and the music you know of songs that maybe you've sung thousands of times you know and how do you make that an honest and a a true connection and not just sort of phoning it in of course sometimes there's shows where you're phoning it in mm. more and which is okay because if you have an artistry and an ability then that's enough because the music And the work can speak for itself. The words can speak for themselves. But obviously it is also great when you can really connect with the words and and with the music and and physically and emotionally. And sometimes these are words that you wrote, you know, 20, 30 years ago and about, you know, a time that was really different. But can you find a new meaning in, in the words, in the poems, or does a line take on a new meaning and then the song can sort of evolve? And that's what I have found to be the most rewarding rewarding experience because oftentimes i'm playing by myself solo a lot of the some of the same songs that i've done for years and how to keep doing it in a way where i feel connected and that's where i where the best songs that i've written have not let me down
2: when you're standing up there on your own is it exposing
1: absolutely you know um fully you know, uh, uh, physically, you know, I feel like, you know, there's eyes on my face and my body In a way I would feel less comfortable in another kind of situation. So sometimes I'll let myself be on stage and things that are very exposed because I feel that that's the place to do that. You know, whereas if I walked into a dinner party or into an office meeting, I don't have that many of those, but I have them sometimes with something where <laughs> lucky you can, see, you can see my nipples, or whatever that would make me feel uncomfortable whereas if I'm on stage and I'm wearing something where you can see my nipples I don't I if I as long as I do it knowingly and I'm aware of it and I'm happy to do it then it, it it's a place where that makes sense you know what I mean where it's okay you know mm-hmm. a certain of nudity and exposure when I say nudity like to me that that's a a good place to do that if you're in charge of it and if you feel that that's what you want to do at that that time and and there's a distance which I really appreciate you know and on stage you know people are it's not as scrutinizing as say a photograph you know and I think for women in particular as they get you know older photographs are difficult to to deal with you know everyone's clicking them on their phone and you're looking you go shit you know Whereas on the stage, there's some makeup, but there's also lights, and there's literally feet and feet away uh, from the closest person. And I think that that's comforting. And it also allows you to be more gestural, you know, and this is something that people have done in in the art of theater forever. You know, you put a lot of makeup on, almost like a mask, almost like in an extreme way so that, you know, the person in the back row can see you or the smallest expression that you make can can express the feeling. Um, And that, I think, is a great way to be. (laughs) Um, It's a great way to be able to really express stronger, more extreme ideas, which is good for me because that matches with some of the lyrics. And, and I'm, I'm on the stage, I get very physical, you know, I, I'm gestural and things like that. And that's been something that I I appreciate because it matches the level of feeling that I sometimes have that you can't maybe Express when you're walking down the street when you want to scream or when when you're crying when you're walking down the street and you don't want anybody to see you how much you want to cry so you have to sort of duck into you know a doorway to let it out you know.
2: I mean I was wondering how old were you do you think when you found your voice not just because you come from a family with such loud distinct voices but also because so many of the women I speak to say it took them you know kind of almost into their forties and or older. In many cases, to find their voice.
1: Well, I think the voice evolves into you know itself. You're trying on different things and and wrestling with it until you sort of are in control of it in a way that you can count on it. I mean that that's sort of how I I understand it with my music career and singing careers. You know my my voice was really interesting and my teens and twenties and did a lot of remarkable things, but also I had very little control of it. You know, I would lose my voice a lot. I couldn't hit certain high notes. This was for whatever reason, maybe from smoking too much or just from over singing or mm-hmm. just, from I think also emotional feelings, you know, because the voice, you know, mm-hmm. would feel vulnerable. Oftentimes I would lose my voice and things like that. And then over time, you know, I sort of had to, climb on top of it and take charge of it rather than it sort of taking charge of me. And that's a very good feeling because that means that you know I could, with more confidence, get up on stage and if there's ten shows in a row or if I at a show and I've sort of my voice is not that great and I've dropped a string on the guitar is broken, I can still get through the set. In my case as well, though, I think that happened earlier than than when I was forty because I I grew up a little. I mean, this happens to lots of people who go through something that's difficult, but I had to grow up pretty quickly when when i was 33 when my mother died and my my son was born and and he was premature and i was had always been a kid before that and kind of quite dysfunctional and sort of almost overnight but i think maybe over 2 or 3 years i was really faced with a different reality that forced me to sort of have to grow up in a way and singing helped me you know because i was making my living singing and, and it was also helping me to um, you know, psychologically, you know, it helps to express yourself through singing. And so it helped with a lot of the pain that I was feeling. I had the opportunity to sort of um, have to take charge of my voice like I had to take charge of my life. You know, all of a sudden I was a, a property owner several times o- over. I had no parent. Really, any longer. I had a deep sense of feeling of loss that I hadn't had. I had a difficult marriage already. I had a child who had some special needs, and I had a career that was um, very um, active. So it made me have to sort of give up a lot of the behavior that I had in my 20s of being a little bit of a self sabotager, especially with drugs and alcohol, and have to sort of whip myself into shape.
2: You had kind of until that point, well, until your former marriage, really. Hope you don't mind me saying this pretty bad taste in men. Yeah. Is that fair? Um, Was there a parallel between some of your relationships and your parents' marriage, do you think?
1: I think that, you know, my parents' relationship was very um, toxic, I guess, if that's sort of a. I mean, that makes me think of Britney Spears. But, you know, (laughs) they drank a lot and cheated on each other and tried to sort of outdo each other and try to hurt each other, you know. But luckily, it only lasted for five or so years. So that's good. I think it was passionate. I think that their exquisite talent, (laughs) each having this very specific way of being, and also their incredible freedom... Uh, self a- egomania and also they're and I think they were both incredibly like um, sexy and sexual and overt with it. I think that that really m- made me feel weird. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I didn't know that, you know, I think it was like really overwhelming. And I think also because I had to witness a certain amount of it And it was kind of extreme. And I feel bad saying this because I think that everybody should be able to express their madness and their sexuality and their brilliance, you know, without having to um, hide it. But I think that I was really like kind of aware of it. So that by the time I started to, you know, by the time I reached puberty and was starting to I didn't feel as uh, attractive as my parents, you know, and I think that um, in terms of having bad taste in men, I think that there was something about me and this insecurity that I had about my looks and, and the way that I was that made it that the men that, that I was with were people that um, themselves had some confusion about relationships and women. And I don't know if they have abandonment issues or whatever, but there does seem to be this pattern of some of the men that I was with that they were secretive and then went on to have very kind of odd and disturbing relationships with women, whether it's prostitutes or, you know, just... So there's something there. Mm. I did have good taste in men and then I liked some really great men. They just didn't like me back. (laughs) So so in the the same way, they were my friends, but they didn't want to be my boyfriend or whatever. And also, you know, I liked men that that were, you know, um, unattainable and difficult. But yeah, I think also men that had a kind of a twisted thing with women.
2: In the book, it's really noticeable. You give yourself such a hard time about your looks. Like and you kind of use the word handsome a lot pejoratively. Yeah. Um, And your delightful brother saying he's never seen anyone who's so beautiful and so ugly at the same time. It's like thanks so much, brother. Well, that's what brothers are for, isn't it? To be like that.
1: But yeah. When he said that it, it, it you know, unfortunately it rang true because I think it it spoke to my own conflict about myself of you know, having this really strong belief in myself and in, in every way, including the way that I look, and then this deep,
2: deep feeling
1: of worthlessness.
2: Has that changed, Danny, as you've got older?
1: Well, you know, it's it's sad to say, not sad to say, but I at forty. 39, I, you know, started my divorce proceedings. And although it was the hardest and scariest time ever, it was very, very bad. And it was, you know, lawyers, and it was really fucked up. I was better looking than I I had ever been, or at least that's what people would say, you know, I was better looking than when I was in my 20s. -hmm. I was thinner, my face looked a certain way, or my hair or whatever, that, that seemed to be more you know, noticeable, but also, you know, because I was, all of a sudden available, I found out that, you know, that for a long time men had, had been interested in me, but they were, they were good men and they didn't do anything because I was, you know, I was married, you know, and I didn't really know that, you know, and I was really happy to find that out. And I think that that really gave me a lot of confidence, even though I, this is not a, a good thing. I, um, you know, I, I was so upset and so freaked out about not seeing the kids and the anxiety I lost weight and I was thin for the first time and clothes looked really good on me, you know, and I was traipsing around. Mm -hmm. My face got a little thinner or whatever. And there was this like window where everyone was sort of, you know, really telling me I was on fire and men were coming up to me and it was something that had never, ever, ever happened to me ever in my life. And I had always wanted it. And it was really amazing. I was like, shit, this is incredible. You know? And <laughs> I met somebody two years after I was separated and we fell madly in love and still are. And I had this most incredible relationship with the man that I had like one I had never had that was honest and good and also very, very sexual in a way that I had never felt comfortable, you know, so it was really, really incredible mm-hmm. you now, really incredible, and this was like 42, 43, and, and then I thought, hey, here's this guy that I really like, and we love each other and we're having sex all the time, and maybe I would I, I would like to have a baby with him, and um, you know, obviously I had to think about that because, you know, I have two kids, but they, my two boys, and really love Nico my partner and there seemed to be a lot of trust there and a lot of you know love overall so I thought and then I we started trying naturally and it didn't work you know we tried for two plus years you know and I was 43 44 years old you know he's in his 50s you know the chances are next to nil you know and trust me I spent a lot of time looking it up and so that was, you know, understandable. You know, it wasn't tragic. He has two children from a previous marriage who are, that are now in their 20s. I had two kids. You know, it's okay. You know, we're okay you know, whatever, you just get disappointed every time the period, your period comes and you're like, well, that's too bad, you know, but, but it was, oh, okay. But it, it, but I, I definitely, my mind played tricks on me. You know, I took a lot of pregnancy tests, thinking I was pregnant when I wasn't. (laughs) And then I would say that just in the last year, you know, once it's sort of accepting that now I'm 46. Accepted that you know, I feel that some of the confidence and and the the feelings that I had in my early forties, right? You know, of feeling like I'm look better than ever. That's fading, and I, and it scares me because it felt so good at that moment. You know, to be free of a difficult marriage, looking better supposedly than ever, meeting somebody, you know, and now, you know, that, so the honeymoon of that is fading, you know, and um, I guess in recent, you know, months, and the last year, you know, I'm feeling a little more, um, in my profession, people get work or don't get work, you know, on their faces and things like that. So you think about that, but I'm a folk musician, so I can't. <laughs> it wouldn't make any sense, you know. <laughs>
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or
2: sleepnumber.com. Do you feel that pressure then to have work and, and all of that?
1: I don't like the way a lot of work looks, like in terms of lip injections and filler and Botox. I find that that really doesn't uh, look great, and I'm sorry to say that But and you know, sometimes maybe people get that done, and I don't know, and that then they that they're doing a great job. But when you can really see it, it I don't I think I think a really good facelift probably would be the best thing to do. Some people, you know, that it really seems to be when you can have it done well, it seems like a good thing for, but I I think it makes sense for actors and for people who wear makeup every day and for people who are really on their appearance and you sort of set it correctly you know with what you're wearing and your eyewear and your nails and i think it can be really quite in- incredible and and uh totally understandable i think especially if you're if you're an actress and um, an actor you know i think for me it's you know considering that i spend most of my time in like wool sweaters with moth holes and you know <laughs> and around a dirty kitchen table you know i don't know if it really makes sense but you definitely i think about it i think about it but then the main thing that i think about is you know that what would it do if it changed my face you know and what would what would that be like to look at myself that way and i don't think i could really handle
2: it i think that's what stops me too i'd like to pretend it was some kind of moral high ground but really there are things i don't like but i wouldn't want to not look like me ultimately i think yeah And like you say, sometimes people have really good work and you don't know, so it's great. But other times the people who have a lot of work or or bad work and you're like, oh my God, you can never go back from that.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that there's all sorts of incredible things that I could be doing in a non-obvious way. I'm just sort of, I'm just not that organized
2: (laughs) either. (laughs) No, it's funny funny though, because I remember it really struck me so much when I was reading the book before we talked last time you wrote about your mum in her 40s and 50s and how she was gorgeous and thriving and it's so funny because from outside you know sitting here I've been looking at you for 45 minutes nearly that seems to me to apply to you
1: well good well thank you how much money do I owe you (laughs) you know I I believe that and I and I know that that's um I know that that's true I really do know that that's true and I and I and I see that in in all of my girlfriends as well, you know, that they are really look, and are amazing and are doing great and, and, you know, but it's just this battle that we have with ourselves that is, you know, obviously caused by the fact that we're constantly exposed to things that are completely unrealistic and not real, you know, and that's really what it is, you know, and I don't think that these issues existed before, you know, I mean, I want to say magazines made it worse because everyone saw magazines and I'm sure that there were versions of that from thousands of years before that maybe didn't afflict everybody, you know, but this obsession with a need for beauty, but the beauty industry, you know, is, is causing these feelings. Mm. And, you know, it's not my case, but I mean, I'm sure that there, you know, women feel abandoned by, you know, men when their husbands leave for younger women or when they're when they stop being able to have children and they feel worthless. You know, I mean, there's all of these structures that make us feel less important as our eggs diminish and we become less um, desirable. But that hasn't been my that hasn't been my experience in the sense that, you know, as I said, I, you know, uh, became to me what seemed to be more desirable to men and a man in particular now uh you know as i as i got older i mean hopefully but but that's i think also about choosing and finding someone who isn't fucked up you know and someone who doesn't have, yeah. have a, co- a weird concept of what you know a weird relationship with women i mean that's a sort of simple way of putting it but. yeah
2: i think i don't know i mean you can't possibly generalize but I do think that there's an element of that that comes with being able to identify that, you know, and not like constantly chasing the bad boy. And I'm not talking about you. I'm just talking about everyone. (laughs) I think that does come with being a bit older, maybe. I don't know. Well, to me, it felt like I think it
1: comes with being older. At the time, to me, it felt like a lesson given to me by God. I'm, and I'm not saying I'm not a religious person. I don't really believe necessarily in God or anything like that. But I felt that I was so I was so um, I was so upset, and I had been what I felt you know very mistreated by my ex husband for different reasons. You know, I probably exaggerated them in my mind, no doubt as well. And you know, I had so many bad feelings about my ex-husband. Lots of negative thoughts. That the therapist I saw a psychiatrist for a while said was completely normal because I was afraid. I was like, "Is it normal to have think like this?" And the and 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 yeah. the therapist said, "Absolutely. You know, of course it is. It's you know, you're human, and it's not abnormal." I was afraid that I had these dark feelings of revenge of wanting to, you know, wishing. He would just go away kind of thing, you know, all of these strange feelings that are really painful to have in your heart and in your mind. It's really painful to carry that around. It really hurts, you know. So instead of Brad being hurt or hit by a bus or whatever it was that I was hoping, <laughs> you know, Nico, this other person came along. And was like, okay, instead of hate fighting bad with bad, I have the possibility of fighting bad with love, and that's what it felt like. And so I felt like choosing, choosing a good thing. But it, it did arrive, and it felt like somehow a, a a gift. But maybe it was because I was finally open to that and free to and and free to receive it.
2: Being in a pretty good place at I the minute. Mean, how is that making you feel about? Fifty.
1: It's making me feel very good about it. I think that, you know, because of the not being able to get pregnant thing and, you know, sort of coming out of the honeymoon period of this relationship and getting more into sort of the reality of it and, and seeing my age on my face, I think it's, this is a little bit of a difficult time, but I could think that I'm gonna get used to it. <laughs> and that fifty by the time I'm <laughs> I feel like I'm gonna sort of really be over it in but I don't know, you know, but I I get. I think that this is a, a kind of a grappling, like a ah, thing. And I feel very um, excited almost about, you know, being 50 because I, I don't know. I just, I just, I'm not worried about it. For me, the worry of being any age really also just relates to work. You know, what am I going to be able to, how am I going to be able to, create music, keep going in a way that's going to support my family, because I'm the sole breadwinner, essentially, and how am I going to be able to work and also see the kids before they really leave for good, you know, because, you know, there's only, you know, five, 10 more years before they're out of the house, you know, do I want to spend that on the road all the time? Or do I want to make sure to, you know, just enjoy this time that I have with them before they leave? And also to help them, you know, to help them make good decisions and get through school and, you know, and get through some things that I think are going to be really difficult, some emotional things that I think are going to be difficult that I already sort of see coming up and of course there'll be the surprises that I know nothing about that's my you know how am I going to be able to do it all basically sort of going back to where we started about how how does one have a music career and and have kids be on the road and have kids and I think that that's going to continue to be a conflict because the, my work requires travel and it requires a certain amount of selfishness a certain amount of honesty—that's uh, a little bit, you know, dangerous in a way. But I think that fundamentally, I'm convinced is a good message for the kids. My kids. I think it's really important for my two boys, in particular, to see their mother up on stage, speaking, mm. singing, you know, openly, being exposed emotionally, and being able to command a room, and then get paid to do it. Possibly less than her male counterparts. And then, Mm -hmm. um, you know, still be present for them and be able to bring something to the bake sale or whatever it is that, you know, makes them feel some normalcy from her, you know? So, you know, that's that's going to be the the goal, but I I I think from what I understand is that you know your forties and your fifties are your busiest time ever in your life in terms of you know earning years for people like us you know who live in the structured mm-hmm. society you know so this is a very 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 important time and one that I don't want to spend feeling bad about my age and bad about myself
2: and that's total total waste of energy yeah how is it raising boys do you think there are specific issues
1: Well, in my case, it's everybody's situation is different. You know, my situation is a little loaded because, you know, I'm in conflict with their dad and their dad is very powerful and he has a very strong power over them because, you know, they they see themselves in him as a man, you know, so they're Mm. connected in that way He's the example, right, that they're following. I feel, you know what I feel like? I feel like um, I feel sorry for myself. I feel um, less equipped. I feel like I'm on the outside of a club that I can't get into. And that is silly because there's something I can do about that. And so that I had to get over. And, you know, also people always say to me, oh, don't worry, Martha, you know, boys love their mamas, you know. They'll always come back to their mama. they'll always come back to their mama and all that stuff. But I want to be prepared if they won't, you know, because they're going to make a decision soon ish, you know, they'll be able to make that decision. Mm -hmm. They might want to choose the house where, you know, they don't have to do their homework as much and there's pizza and there's video games and it's messy. You know, (laughs) like I feel like I have to brace myself to um, accept that and to uh, let it go. That expression has been stolen by Disney but um or Pixar or whatever <laughs> you know I just came home 2 days ago and I was really really happy for their affection from the boys to moms, you know, and now they're a little bit older. So I don't, you know, we don't take baths together anymore like that because one of them has hit puberty and the other one is close behind. So it's a different type of affection. And I do feel like I I really missed it and I really need it. But I also really understand that I need to help them to be equipped to do things without me. And that's the best thing that I can give them. Mm. and the best thing i can also give them or that nico and i can give them is that they could see a positive relationship between two adults that's we have to show them so that they have that example because they have the other example between their two parents that don't get along and divorce and they still talk about it and they're still really affected by it so i'm trying to Make sure that they know that there are there's other ways of being with your partner, and that you know of of respecting and and kindness, and that's the message that I think we need to give them. I need to give them, and the fact that they are boys, you know, one of my youngest son really loves hip hop music. Mm-hmm because he's really into hip-hop culture and black culture. He loves basketball. He wants to be a basketball player. And um, I let him listen to hip-hop music. I don't really care about swear words or anything like that. I just, like, my whole thing is like, look, if, if the whole thing is about bitches and bitch this and bitch that and it's about, you know, shooting people up and it, it's anti-women, I don't want, you know, that's what I don't want to see. You know, and the same thing for my eldest son, who's now, you know, talking about girls and talking about them in a way that's, she's not pretty or she's Sexy, or she's not sexy, or she's got to do this, or she, you know, that's just always the big red Mm lights constantly trying to remind them that um, girls can do everything that boys can do and you can't treat them that way. And It's gotten better, but he seems to really understand. My, my eldest son had this thing like two years ago and he was obsessed with the fact that, you know, if you say something bad about a girl that it's misogynistic, but if you say something bad about a boy that there isn't really an equivalent, you know, and I was like, well, no, there isn't an equivalent because girls and women, you know, have been uh, repressed and put down for, years they are the under society so no there was no Mm. and that really disturbed him and it made him angry but i think that he's really coming to understand also why that is you know and i think that he's getting it and he's becoming more sensitive to girls and and being more careful which is good so it's just with the boys i think it's just about being being careful To make sure that they know not to abuse people with their power. Because also my boys are big. They're big guys. Don't hurt people. Don't force anybody into doing something they don't want to do. Make sure that you're not being forced into doing something that you don't want to do.
2: Mm. I've been trying not to be distracted by is that a kangaroo over your shoulder? (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) There's a lot of arbitrary things in here.
2: It's a really interesting room. So often it's like mine. You get just like a, a door
1: my giant vagina painting look at that
2: oh brilliant
1: (laughs) this is an artist who's pretty well known her name is Joan Snyder and it's it's big it's like five by ten feet and that's obviously a big vagina in the middle of it and it's lyrics from my mother's song tell my sister um, which is about a miscarriage and um, when I saw the painting I thought oh this is such an incredible painting and it was painted by her when she was listening to me singing the song and um, you know it has her mother all of these sort of very it's a very feminist painting but I really wanted it so over five plus years I did a payment plan and she was able to sell it to me for a little bit less like we didn't go through the gallery so it was a really big deal for me to finally be able to hang it in my house
2: oh it feels like it had your name on literally
1: it says Martha Wayne right there so yeah so I you know
2: I had to have it and yeah is your place did it used to be your mum's
1: yeah my mom at around my age 47 yeah around this time she bought this building this has three apartments in it it's like a triplex and um, she put everything she had she had it gutted and renovated but of course it went like way over budget it was crazy and she went completely into debt and really I found out later was really at the edge of literally throwing herself out the window She was. it was very stressful and you know every cent, every penny plus some. And then briefly, you know, Rufus uh, lived upstairs and I lived downstairs and she lived on the middle floor. And this was like kind of her dream come true. And then he went to Los Angeles and then I soon after went to New York, but she always kept We always had our own apartments here and each one had a grand piano on it. And it was like really this amazing place. And then when she died uh, 13 years ago, I inherited it and I moved back to live in it about nine years ago. So as I've now been here almost 10 years, now there are fewer and fewer pictures of her, less and less of her clothes. It was at first a little bit of a museum to her and it was a little bit overwhelming. But slowly I've been able to sort of move stuff out and into art archive or into storage spaces or just throwing stuff out to, uh, you know, make space for me and my kids, you know, and my kids will be able to have their own apartments and, which is good because, you know, I could still make sure that they are, you know, washing. <laughs> 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 yeah, well, it's very meaningful because they never got to meet their grandmother. But, you know, this was a gift that she gave us and that she she literally it almost killed her and she put everything into it. And then, of course, 25 whatever years later, you know, it's worth a lot of money. And, she, you know, it was an incredible thing to inherit. And, and it was completely the right thing to do, you know, and it was really amazing.
2: You talk In the book, a lot about, well, not a lot, but you talk about maybe not belonging or feeling like an outsider and not necessarily knowing what home is. Does this house feel like home now?
1: This house feels like home, definitely. And I think that it's really important to to make it Feel like home because I've never, you know. I think that the kids have two homes between here and their dads, and there is a part of me that would like to move back to New York. And I think about it. I think about how could we get back there because it would be good for work, because you know things like that. But I think for the time, I think it's for now. It really needs to be home, mainly for the kids and maybe for myself.
2: I mm. am right, going to ask you the questions I always ask at the end. Okay, what's your emotional age?
1: Wow, what a great
2: question!
1: Well, today I'm—I feel like uh, it's a great day. I'm very happy today. I'm very happy with where where I am. I'm happy to be home. I'm happy to see the kids. I'm happy to have made some money on the road. I'm happy to be here. So I feel very happy in the age that I am. So I would have to say, forty-six. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Give us a book recommendation so it can just be something you've always loved or, or it can be something new. There's
1: a great Canadian uh, uh, female writer named Heather O'Neill that I remember when I started out doing shows and she was a poet. s We've been sort of paralleling each other for years. And she writes books that are set in Montreal, but generally set in, uh, you know, in the past. And she's incredibly uh, good and very descriptive. And one of her last books is called When We Lost Our Heads. And it's a really great book.
2: Oh, I have to check her out. What advice would you give younger women?
1: Don't listen to advice?
2: (laughs) (laughs) No. That's. (laughs) Listen to your gut. Did you?
1: Um, not always, no, but I try to.
2: Um. Who's an older woman who inspired you, inspires you?
1: My aunt Janie right now, that's Kate and Anna's sister. She's older, she's sick, she's in the hospital, but she's battling cancer, but she's really has a very strong will to live. And she is rock solid and um, a powerhouse. And I'm just, uh, I'm very much in awe of uh, how she's Dealing with her, her, her illness. I mean, perhaps she's too stoic in a way, but she's, you know, living life to its fullest and, you know, doing her treatments and they're working, although they make her really sick. She's then able to, you know, she has times when she can do things and she's using that time really in a great way. And she doesn't seem to have any regrets. It's very cool that she's uh, pushing this hard to stay on this earth and doing it. It's very graceful in a way.
2: What's your superpower?
1: I think my superpower is to be a lot of things and to be able to do a lot of different types of things, whether that's you know be it on stage working but also be good at you know I like to cook so I like to cook a lot for the kids of being both their mother but also their friend of being a good friend to people as well of being in a lot of different places and doing a lot of different types of things in, in life
2: and last one is how many fucks do you give
1: how much do I care Does that mean yes that? yes oh, sorry, sorry I think you know the way that I see it I care a lot I guess So a
2: lot, you know, a lot. Mm, That is what I mean, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. I love talking to you again. So nice to see you. Nice to see you. (laughs) Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, Please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at study.media forward slash the shift.
0: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall.